Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mad in America. This is your host for today, Ayurdhidhar. I am an assistant professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia and a spotlight interviewer for Mad in America. And our guest for today is Dr. Nandita Chaudhary, a leading world expert on the psychological lives of children. Dr. Chaudhary was a professor at Lady Urban College in New Delhi, Delhi University, for over 30, 35 years and is currently on a visiting professorship in Brazil. She has over 70 publications to her name. She has authored and co-authored and edited numerous books. But to be honest, my favorite remains her personal blog called Masala Chai. Now, Dr. Chaudhary is not just any expert in child psychology. Her work has challenged mainstream and predominantly Western ideas of parenting, child rearing, child health, suffering, and a lot more. So she's a cultural expert here. And for those who don't know, this is a very important field because just a few years ago, it was discovered that most of the research done in child psychology specifically was done in Western, industrialized, rich nations. I think over 90% of it. And then it was simply applied without any thought or foresight to the rest of the world. One size fits all model. So how we understand the lives of children is essential to how we think about suffering, how we think about disorders, how we think about healing, what we call illness, what we don't call illness. It's essential to pretty much everything. Dr. Chaudhary, welcome to Mad in America. Thank you very much uh, for the introduction, Ayurti, and I'm excited to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So let's begin with something more personal, right? Why the interest in studying the lives of children and their caregivers? Where did that interest come from that you wanted to dedicate such a huge part of your career to? So my interest in uh, developmental psychology uh, kick-started in the first year of university, undergraduate, where we had really nice, really good teacher who uh, dealt with issues uh, primarily from mainstream textbooks. But that itself was very intriguing because what you're really trying to understand is the formation of of a human being, right? Uh, genetics apart, I think we know very well how important it is to have, um, uh, you know, an environment that complements, that resists, and that promotes certain aspects of development. And then um, as I advanced in my studies, I got married and had my own children, then it was kind of cemented my, my interest. I was curious about why they were doing what they were doing how it could be done differently and how I could do the best as a parent to to bring up my kids. So it it became more personal after that. It was not just an interest. Tell me something. You said you had a really good teacher, but the perspective was still pretty mainstream. So was there a point when you realized that what you were studying or what you had studied about children in psychology was not fitting with what you are looking at what you have seen and what you have experienced in India? I think it crept up on me in postgraduate study. Our postgraduate study was designed as a sort of uh, eclectic 
perspective where we had courses on social anthropology, on sociology, on um, physiology, along with. So it was like a really innovative uh, curriculum that we were part of that helped me to develop this idea that, you know, there was much more going on than what was given in the textbooks. Tell me about your work on something called attachment theory, right? So um, the reason I want to talk about this is because attachment theory is everywhere. It's used by everyone. I mean, from um, social workers to court orders, but also most dangerously and might I add ridiculously on social media, Instagram, right? And you're, it's, it's this idea that if you have this kind of a parent, it leads to this kind of an attachment and this kind of an abandonment issue and this kind of trauma, which equals to this kind of disorder. It is very simplistic, linear. Um, so before we get into the, the huge amount of work you've done on understanding and criticizing attachment theory, can you very briefly tell us what is attachment theory? The framework that the proposal that attachment theory promotes is the idea that the healthy emotional development of a child through life is determined by a singular, exclusive, responsive, predictable caregiver. Now, responsive, predictable, exclusive, and consistent is something that I wouldn't use for any Indian parent that I have worked with and I have experienced, primarily because in terms of predictability, the expectations of someone to behave in a singular manner all the time is something that I think is humanly impossible, number one. It depends on your state of mind. It depends on who is around. And in our context, it really depends on who you are with, who you are among. If you're among a large family network, you would give priority to the other person to take over. So this importance of other people and presence of multiple caregivers is a key distinction between what is proposed as a context for healthy development and the reality of childcare in the majority world, I would say. So can I ask, yeah, so just to kind of clarify, when we think about predictable caregiving, right, and a consistent, right? So I'm thinking of a sim simple example. Uh, my one and a half year old is not allowed to look to touch phones or look at phones. Uh, there is a big no phone policy. But for sure, like there are times that, you know, I am exhausted or I'm doing something or preparing for an interview and she has my phone and I can see she has it. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to let her have it for five minutes, right? So normally I stop her, but the context, the relationship, based on whether my parents are around me or my husband is or I'm alone, all of these factors join into the fact that my response to her on when she picks up a phone will differ based on the context and the situation and things like that. I'm just thinking in terms of examples and cases, would that make sense? Like people are not constantly predictable, consistent in every situation. And is that, is that similar to what you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, the uh, testing of attachment is done in a laboratory setting. 
And those results are then extrapolated to uh, ordinary life and people are judged against that. And what the person is coming from on that day, whether the lab is a familiar setting for a child or not, it, you know, it, the, it's called the strain situation test when the mother is asked to leave uh, the room and the child is left alone with a stranger. And if the child shows some separation anxiety and also uh, approaching the mother when she returns, it is seen as a healthy sign. I'm just giving you a very brief outline of the protocol. Now, if first of all, if the child is, uh, if, if the lab setting is so different from the home, that would in itself be stranger than it would be for someone else, right? On the other hand, if the child is used to having other people around, the departure of the mother may not um, trigger anything, any anxiety, right? If the, if the child is so interested in the toys because she has no toys at home and is absorbed in them and doesn't respond to the mother when she comes back, I, you know, that, that would be seen as a sign. It is immediately marked as pathological over a series of observations. So uh, even under circumstances uh, in which people in the West themselves live, I see uh, the use of the attachment protocol is highly problematic. And, and you are making, and then you're giving a label of the child being disengaged or, uh, you know, uh, inadequately attached. Uh, it's, it's a huge repercussion on the child's developmental uh, progression and giving of labels, as you yourself have noted in your work, the assignment of labels onto people can uh, be a form of violence in my understanding. The, the context of the lab being used as a controlled environment, as uh, you know, psychologists tend to assume that that is the best way of observing children because you don't have interruptions, you don't have disruptions, you don't have too many people speaking at the same time. However, is that environment something from which you can then talk about uh, the reality of having a home and a mother and a child? I think that developmental psychology has been most unjust to mothers because they assume as if mothers have nothing else to do but to respond to this glorious object who has in fact, you know, created so much disruption in their lives. And I fear that, you know, uh, uh, proposals of attachment theory fail to understand the mother's point of view and that she herself is a person in need of care, in need of relief, of support, um, you know, the support that is structured is usually from outside agencies, but in larger families, the new mother is the one. They, I have heard people say uh, that uh, the child can take care of herself, you know, it's the mother who needs care. And as you may know, it is therefore conventional practice to send a mother to her own maternal home for the birth, especially of the first child. The idea is not that the child will be taken care of. Of course, that is taken for granted, but that she herself needs care. So talking about a better understanding of how children 
um, and their lives in other parts of the world. Tell me about the many, many by many model of childcare that you developed with Heidi Keller, um, if I'm not wrong. At one point in my career, uh, one of my PhD students and myself, we looked at the word mamta. It's, uh, it's a word in Hindi and almost all Indian languages. It's understood as the special mother's love for her own child, right? So we did a survey of people like, what do you think Mamta is and how is it expressed and what are the circumstances in which it can manifest itself? And uh, uh, we came to a very curious discovery in the word itself. We looked at the taxonomy and the uh, origin of the word. And it's, it's a Hindi word that draws from Sanskrit where the origin of the word includes mum, which is myself, and love, right? So mamta is a true, it's, it's a word that means both a mother's love for the child but also a mother's love for herself. So I see in that origin an ideology that has always promoted a notion that a mother should not be too close to her child. Now, this directly contradicts um, attachment theory. Because it is, in fact, if a mother is becoming too close to her child, if a child is overly attached to the mother, the relatives will step in to ensure that there are other people who can take over. They, they actually warn you that this child is too attached to you. Do something about that. So, and the idea of that is... You may argue that the idea is that the mother is not important and that others are important. But the idea is that the mother is so important that you need backup. So when I looked at the many-by-many many model and when I tried to understand it, I, I realized that the presence of others was not to underestimate the mother. But first of all, the mother herself needs care and support. And also that the mother is so important that you need backup arrangements, uh, you know, so that people are there, that the child is taken care of and doesn't become, you know, if the child is overly attached to the mother and is uh, in broken every time the mother leaves. I mean, can you imagine uh, how difficult as, you know, when children develop, uh, stranger anxiety, separation anxiety around 12 months of age, as uh, Piaget had noted, and a lot of uh, psychologists have studied that after that. At around 12 months, they developed this notion that the mother has left, but haven't yet developed object permanence, which is that she'll come back. She's just behind the door. So there is that little window during which separation anxiety expresses itself, right? Now, if that is again expresses itself when the mother and the child are the only two people all the time. So in fact, as you probably know, whenever Indians, uh, even immigrants have kids, they 
always bring in family support from, you know, older people are put themselves to enormous difficulty to travel, to take care of, of the babies. Uh, in, and it's not just about the baby, as I said, it's also about the person who's had the child. The persons, I don't want to dismiss the fact that the fathers also need support here. To come back to the many-by-many many model, the logic of this model is based on the idea of uh, complementary care. So what is seen as substitute care is, is uh, I, I see that as supplementary care and not substitute care that's happening. I'm not pitching the Western family against the joint family. I'm actually arguing even further to say that all families have evolved from this. So if, if you look at the example of the Scandinavian countries, I think it is the state that acts in that role, right? And the child care services act as if they are the support services uh, for the parents. And it's a very good model. But the point is that I don't wish to underestimate any other uh, ideology in childcare. And I certainly don't want people to pathologize the, what is familiar to me because I see the, the value in, in that. So, okay, that's the perfect segue then into what I will ask you next. The dangers of pathologizing something that we don't understand, right? What what do you think are the dangers of not understanding these these different ways that kids and their caregivers, um, you know, are with each other? That these different ways of being, of living, of loving that exist across the world. The biggest one I know is uh, sleeping, co-sleeping. Uh, the pathologizing of co-sleeping, psychology has tended to over psychologize practices. Whereas I see a lot of these options are a result of practical arrangements. If you are a family that has only one room, the mother is not sleeping with the child because she is psychologically wanting the child to stick to her. That issue of treating a practical arrangement as a psychological desire to keep your child under your wing is hugely damaging. Because uh, I remember a student who uh, went from uh, New Delhi, she was um, uh, a research scholar with one of my projects and, and uh, went to Canada for the first time. And she was attacked with questions Oh, you're an Indian, so you're still living with your mother? She And she said, I don't just live with her. I, I like to sleep uh, with my mother. I mean, she was kind of outspoken, but it was treated as something that is so peculiar that, you know, this constant barrage of having to defend yourself as if you're some kind of weirdo and incapable of managing uh, in this environment I see that as uh, as violence, as as uh, you know, uh, epistemic violence about people's way of living, that uh, that uh, that is judged without knowing the significance, the background, the history, even of your own culture. 
because families uh, in Northern America also have not been nuclear families forever. It is a very relatively a recent phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the idea of co-sleeping, um, these, these things have consequences because I remember my pediatrician asking me about it. And I remember just lying to her and saying, sure, she has a different cot, yes, because they will report you to child services. But um, it's also so much bad research and research with an agenda that is out there around sudden infant death syndrome and sleeping with your kids, and which tells us that the, the norms that we have in a society, of course, define the kind of research we do, right? Um, so tell me then this, we, what is the most important piece of research that, or ethnographic research per se, right, that you think people should know about when it comes to the lives of children and caregivers in other parts of the world? Well, I really like Heidi's work on uh, what she calls the aspects of care, where she has separated from the verbal, from the physical, from the physical stimulation. And her work spans, uh, you know, Southern America and uh, Cameroon and, uh, and India, and um, also Germany, of course, and even the UK, uh, Germany is where she comes from. For instance, in one of our uh, students, uh, our joint collaborators did a study of parental warmth towards a child, and she found that there was no such concept that she could hang on to. And when she talked about play, the mothers uh, tended to say these are rural Gujarati women. They said, I don't play with children. Children play with children, right? That's their job. Why do I have to sit and play with my child? So when you ask about examples of research, I will also give you counter examples, which is the research that uh, journals like eminent journals like The Lancet uh, have published from UNICEF and WHO, which talks about poor parents raise criminal children. But as I look at racial dynamics today, I almost... Uh, uh, feel that it's gotten worse. And we haven't, and yet there is activism about it. There is activism about gender, the fluidity of gender boundaries. Why haven't we had poverty activism? Why? Because the people who you're talking about are just too busy working and surviving to get together to say, hey, I'm sorry, you cannot say that about me. So who is going to speak on their behalf, right? Now, in uh, Matthew Desmond's latest book called Poverty by America, he argues that, in fact, this is a problem of each one of us, and we have all to become poverty activists. So I'm making a call to people to say, get up and look at this injustice, where people argue that poor people race criminals. And now that brings me to the quote. So here you go. And I'm quoting exactly. Globally, over 200 million children do not reach their developmental potential in the first five years of life because they live in poverty and have poor health services, nutrition, and psychosocial care. These disadvantaged children do poorly in school and subsequently have low incomes, high fertility, 
high criminality and provide poor care for their own children. Therefore, healthcare and uh, encounters for women and young children are important opportunities to strengthen families. Efforts to promote children's early development and may represent a critical time when health professionals are developing. So, so here's my problem. If I want to help someone, right, Ayurdi, you're in need of my help. But let me tell you, you're not a very nice person, okay? But I'm going to help you. Why have we not looked at the deliberately violent language that UNICEF uses to talk about 200 million people, families? Who is going to get up and stand up to these uh, to, to UNICEF and say, no, I'm sorry, you can help people, you can help children without saying this? And what they talk about, the research on which this is based is called evidence-based research. If you look at the samples of this research, the protocols are primarily developed in the, in the West. And they have the same problems of methods and uh, observations and protocols that are developed in a country where poverty activism is non-existent. America is a country where, which is wealthy enough not to have pockets of poverty, but there is a deliberate attempt to underestimate the lives of the poor. And I think that has to change. And I see my work having shifted to, and that's why uh, I say that, yes, attachment theory is important, but this is for me far more important. Although the ideology of these uh, global agencies emerges from the tenets of attachment theory. I see in everything pretty much they said a number of things that they are just taking for granted, what we would call assumptions, right? That there are certain basic cognitive skills that are universal, that there are basic certain emotional skills that are universal. I mean, there are these are things that anthropologists and historians have, even cultural psychologists have put a big question marks against, like there are these basic emotional skills apparently everyone in the world should have. What are, the, what are some of the problems and what these people are assuming is good and healthy and everyone should have? Do they, do they have any decent research? They have research that they call good and authentic, but it has the same weird characteristic that developmental psychology has because they are depending, depending on Western psychologists to do uh, their work. And whenever the work has been done cross-culturally, across cultures, the protocols are the same. So, you know, if you're doing a test of intelligence, you may substitute a tree for the American flag, but you're still, you, you don't understand that the procedure is different where children learn from and with other children, individual intelligence is not the best way of assessing them. One of the main problems I've had with individual testing, I will illustrate with an example. This is a joint family so several brothers and sisters, unmarried aunts, uh, uh, all live in the same household. And there were these two uh, children and who had a younger brother who were part of our study. So this family became a part of our study. We don't, I don't study individual children. I study families and then focus 
on children because I think I don't want to make the same mistake of using the child as a unit of study. So in this case, uh, you know, the younger, the middle child was our focus point, and we had this protocol which was uh, really trying to understand whether she grasps the idea uh, of under, over, on top of, behind, on the side of, kind of, usually kind of playful text. The protocol required us to be alone with the child, and that was impossible in a rural household, in an open courtyard. You can't really go into a small room and close the door. There are no doors, first of all. So the older sister was sitting over there, and the other is not supposed to help the child because intelligence is inside your head, right? It's contained here. It isn't something that you share. So you're trying to test something inside. Now, the child was answering, uh, clearly knew the meaning of under and over because in her ordinary life, she was putting things under, she was following instructions. When it came to the testing and her older sister was separated, she climbed up. She could not imagine a situation in which, why are you removing my older sister from here? She is my teacher. My companion, my constant companion, she wanted her there. And when the sister was there, she was helping. So that is not something that would pass the standard of a testing situation. So Tanu and Manu have a very interesting relationship. And uh, we were doing an observation one day. And they have this charge that they make from separating butter from uh, fermented milk. And we could see, whereas all the women were outside doing their own thing, the mother was breastfeeding her baby, somebody was weaving a basket from uh, strands of uh, straw, and the um, uh, aunt was sitting nearby, the grandmother was on a string cot, and everybody was chatting about a recent event in the village. So this girl goes in, Tanu is at the doorstep, Tanu is the older one, and she drops, she spills the jug, right? So the mother, uh, um, so she's looking very sheepish, she comes out, Tanu uh, is at the door, also comes out, the mother didn't see any of this happen, so she goes and she whacks Tanu on her cheek, okay? That you can't be careful, why did you drop this thing kind of thing. So this girl kept quiet. She did not. She's, she's five or six. She did not betray her younger sister. She took that spanking. Switch to another scene. The two of them are playing ghar ghar on a pile of gunny sacks uh, uh, in the courtyard. Tanu bullies this child who wants to be the teacher. She doesn't allow her. She, she is in control this, she, and she requires unconditional compliance from the younger sister. Now, that kind of relationship, though fluctuating, is assumed as pathological because it's controlling or it's abusive or whatever else you may call it. I see that as collaboration and learning from each other and gaining from 
sometimes following and sometimes leading, sometimes being saved, and sometimes even being pressurized by that person. I see that as natural for children everywhere. And I'm sure all families have such episodes. But the point is, when you see this context and you take a measurement that is developed somewhere else in a school system with, where individual children are used to being assessed and spoken to you know, uh, dyadically, you're not even reaching the surface of what a child can do. So in terms of, for example, you know, these glaring loopholes in their research and their methods that have led to these um, these policies and these prescriptions or, or simply speaking, these ideas about the global south, right, that their children are like this and, and things like that. Um, it has led to something like... Uh, something like a global norm for you know what it is to rear a child what it is to protect a child right and recently um, of course the movie came out mrs chatterjee versus norway and uh, so what what is your take so i was uh, since sagarika does not uh, mind her identity being shared i was uh, uh, i met sagarika when she was going through uh, the separation and uh, I had access to all the documents, uh, all the exchanges, that, that thick file that comes up in the movies. I invited them to the department to speak about her life and her experiences. This was soon after she had uh, gained custody of the children. And this is at least 12 years ago. And in those conversations, I remember exactly the incidents that have been reflected in the movie about the stance of uh, the uh, Banavana, uh, the two women who come in from the Child Protection Services. And I found that the early part of the film, which is the reasons for taking away, it was in fact the day they came and took away the child the child was on the second day after having received the DPT vaccination. So, so the child was running high fever. The mother was in this mess when one kid is sick and the other one, you know, there's, there's a mirroring of anxiety and, 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 and that is the day when they took the children away. So I, I see the film as hugely important somewhat uh, dramatized for uh, Bollywood purpose, but not inaccurate. Very quickly, I want to talk about your work on, uh, on the idea of self, right? Now, so much theory in psychology, uh, so much around what causes a mental disorder, what even is a mental disorder, assumes that you know, it's something about the self. And the self is supposed to be this one single thing that is within us. Um, so, you know, for example, in schizophrenia, often the idea is there is idea of a scattered self, a disintegrated self, a disorganized self. Then in, in the West, we have ideas of there is one true self, one authentic self. And anything else that you do that is away from it, you are faking it, right? But your work and a lot of other work has challenged these ideas 
that there is just this one simple contained self that it is it does not change it is static and it is within us so just kind of tell me what have you found about let's say the indian self or a very different sense of self or whether there is a self or not like and i'm sure this connects to our talk about children because uh, the way children are raised and their experiences forms this sense of you know whatever self or no self so first of all uh, uh, i need to clarify that i have not i'm not a clinical psychologist i do not study mental health and i cannot uh, uh, argue about uh, syndromes of or difficult situations or diagnoses of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder i do not want to underestimate that a lot of people have mental difficulties that are hugely challenging and maybe a result of mysterious circumstances both genetic environmental and the combination of so having said that uh what i think would be an important uh proposition from my work is that what you argue as uh ill health or mental illness is culturally situated and even more importantly how you handle it how you treat it needs to have a key consideration to the context in which a person is going back into right so uh, i would see therefore family therapy as an alternative to individual therapy however in terms of the basic sense of self i have written a lot and used to work a lot in the area of self and one of the key things is uh, is my collaboration with the theory of the dialogical self by hubert hermans he's a clinical psychologist and has developed a of a, a protocol for understanding what he calls as the dialogical self which is based on a bakhtinian idea that self is developed in response to others it's not something that is packaged and what i find very powerful and i have written uh, a couple of articles about the development of the self using uh, dialogical self theory is that this is a theory that helps to explore the multidimensionality of the self and argues against this notion of a singular uh, identifiable consistent um predictable self that you always uh, uh rely on as as uh, as a model any any other thoughts or closing thoughts or any examples or stories you want to tell us before we end this interview however much we all hanker for doing better in life we have to remember where we came from and we have to ensure that we don't sacrifice our senses of listening to and hearing other people's experiences now it doesn't matter if you haven't emerged from uh, uh disadvantaged circumstances the larger point is that we have to be able to listen to everyone in order to do something i fear that 
global agencies that are responsible are not really listening to people. They're only wanting to do what they think is good for other people. And I'm sorry, it's, I'm just not uh, in, um, you know, in agreement with that approach. Thank you so much. I mean, this was wonderful. Um, thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views, and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.